Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and welcome to Cape Up. Cecile Richards first came on the podcast in 2017 when she was the president of Planned Parenthood. She returns now as the co-founder of Supermajority, an organization pushing to harness the political power of women to pursue a women's agenda that fosters equity and fairness for all Americans. We talked about this, Trump, her mother, the late Ann Richards, and whether a woman can be elected president in 2020. We recorded this episode during the Third Way Conference in Charleston in June, and you can hear it all right now. Well, Cecile Richards, thank you very much for coming back to the podcast. This is your second time on K-Pop, first time in a live event. Yes, it's exciting. So when you were first on the podcast, you were the president of Planned Parenthood. I don't know if you had announced that you were going to be leaving then, but you were the head of Planned Parenthood from 2006 to 2018. I mean, after, what's that, 16 years, why not just stay? <laughs> well, it was an amazing job. I loved it. It was the best job I ever had. I think it's the best job in America if you want to work in progressive issues. But I also think it's important that those of us who've had these amazing jobs make space for other folks. I think that's true in politics as well. People who are, have been maybe taking up really important roles move aside. And so I haven't given up the fight for reproductive rights and abortion rights, and I think it's never been more important. But I do think it was time for me to make room. Can I say the one interesting thing? I was of realizing course. as I flew into Charleston. The last event I did as a Planned Parenthood president was cutting the ribbon on a brand new health center here in Charleston for Planned Parenthood that not only provides full reproductive care, but also care for transgender patients in the state of South Carolina and surrounding counties. So I just want to say, I love this state. I love the courage of the people here and the real tenacity of the Planned Parenthood family and movement, and I'll I'll always be part of it. When you left Planned Parenthood, did you already have in mind what we now know as supermajority? How did that happen? When I decided I was going to transition out of Planned Parenthood, we had spent a lot of time and resources investing in building a movement, and we had, and we'd gone from 3 million supporters to more than 12 million, tons of young people. I really think Planned Parenthood is one of the most important organizations, not only providing healthcare, but also actually creating activists and fighting for the issues that we care about. But I also knew that there were so many issues we weren't talking to women about, because primarily our focus was on reproductive healthcare access and healthcare more broadly. And I knew there were a lot of other issues that women cared about, our own patients. Things like the fact that they were making minimum wage or that they couldn't afford childcare. And so I'd been interested, particularly in this moment, post the election of 45, that there was this unbelievable energy happening with women. And I wanted to see if there was something we could do to take this moment and make it a longer lasting movement. And so I started talking to some of my friends that are also organizers. Ai-jen Poo leads the National Domestic Workers Alliance. Alicia Garza, one of the founders of the Black Lives Matter global movement and others. And we went around the country basically over the last 12 months to listen to women. And that was the impetus. I wanted to see if there was more that we could do. And the answer was yes. So what exactly is Supermajority doing, either structurally or substantively, that's different from other advocacy organizations? Well, the first thing is I like to actually define what Supermajority is and 
super majority, the definition is literally like more than a simple majority. And that's what I think women are in this country and as voters, as activists, as donors, and so on. But the idea was how do we actually pull together the, all the threads of women who have been self-organizing, I mean, hundreds of new women's organizations that have popped up all around the country from Red Wine and Blue in Cincinnati, as you can only imagine what they're doing. <laughs> and uh, I mean, there's just women's groups everywhere and actually provide more organizing training, advocacy skills, intentional work across racial and generational lines, which I think has been really incredibly important to both me, to me and Alicia and iGen. And then also see if we can't galvanize um, and aggregate two million women between now and next summer, because I believe women will be the determining factor. They always are, but in 2020, women will determine the future of that election and frankly, the future of the country. And so our goal is to spend this next 12 months aggregating 2 million women, training them, organizing them, connecting them, and providing them a skill so that we can run the biggest voter mobilization of women-to-women outreach that we've ever seen in the United States of America and change who's in the White House and change elected office holders all across the country. And so this is training not to run for office, but to get people out to exercise their right to vote. And to advocate for women and for women's issues. It's incredible. We've had 46... I mean, just Emily's list has had 46,000 women say they want to run for office. It's overwhelming. And so I hope that the same skills that we're beginning to provide to folks through supermajority, they're the same skills you need to run for office. And so to me, there it doesn't necessarily have to be a sharp dividing line. But one of the things that I've been thinking about, Jonathan, is... We had a record number of women, obviously, be elected to Congress, a record number of women of color. We also need millions of women out in the countryside supporting them because they are trying to push an agenda. And it's important that they have the ground troops, I think, to be able to do that. You know, Mayor Benjamin said something earlier today in his 10 rules. I didn't catch all 10, but I heard the third rule. And the third rule was, if if I can find it, don't confuse black with liberal. Basically, if you're black, you're most likely Democrat, but you're not necessarily liberal. And as I'm listening to you speak, I'm wondering if that same rule applies to women in the supermajority. Just because you're a woman doesn't necessarily mean you're a Democrat or liberal. And so is it that your message is to democratic-leaning women, or is it all women? Because a lot of the issues that you're talking about, whether it's choice, healthcare access, increasing the minimum wage, pay equity, these are all issues that are talked a lot about on the democratic side of the aisle. Well, a couple of things. First, I should say that supermajority is a 501c4. We're a nonpartisan organization. And you're right. Women are not a monolith. We know that. We can talk about electoral history, which I think is important for us to know so that we can maybe do better in the future. And certainly women, based on a lot of issues, you know, switch their voting behavior. But our belief at supermajority is there are some fundamental values that women share and that we can organize around. And that I think too much, I mean, I mean, there's a lot of conversation at this conference about the highly partisan divide. I actually think women have more in common in this country than you would ever know if you read the paper. And partly I saw that just from traveling around the country. Women are concerned about very similar things. They're concerned about economic equity and fairness. I mean, with the fact that here in 2019, women still make 80 cents 
on the dollar. And if you're an African-American woman, it's 63 cents on the dollar to a man. And if you're Latina, it's 54 cents. That's not a partisan issue. That's a basic issue of economic fairness. Look at the fact that the minimum wage in this country hasn't increased in 10 years. Two-thirds of minimum wage workers are women. And if you are a mother and earning minimum wage, a single mom, you're spending an average of 60% of your salary just on childcare. These are issues that I do not believe are partisan issues. Access to healthcare is not a partisan issue. Then that was obviously an issue that drove so much of what happened in 2018. So I actually think as women, we have a real opportunity to talk about issues that we share in common and get out of this highly partisan divide that I think is sort of masking where most people in this country are. In your travels around the country, what's been the number one issue that you've heard from the women you've talked to? Is it healthcare or is it pay equity, minimum wage? Is it education? What is it? Well, I mean, all of those, but I would say the number one question I get asked or the issue people raise is, I want to do more. Single most asked question (laughs) is that women feel they've been resisting and they want to do more than resist. They actually want to imagine a world where women have equal access and build that. And so I think it's important that we move out of this resistance frame into a building frame. Because as you and I were talking about before we came on, this president, he is this symptom of a lot of problems. And actually for a lot of women, a lot of women of color, things weren't so great before Donald Trump. And so I think it's important that we actually talk about the world we want to build and go and do that. But also women aren't burned out. They want to do more. They want to know what other women are doing and they want to cheer them on. And I think that to me as an organizer, I've been an organizer my whole life, the joy that women are seeing and taking and the success of other women is palpable. And to me, that's something that we have to channel and encourage and grow. And I think women realize that marching is great. Going to your town hall meetings is great. Drinking and sending irate postcards to Mitch McConnell is really can be cathartic, but voting is the whole deal. And that's the only way we're going to actually change what's going on in this country. What's the biggest barrier you see to executing the vision of supermajority? Actually, it's so funny. So I started as an organizer in the South a long time ago, organizing nursing home workers, hotel workers, basically women who made the minimum wage. And in those days, it was sort of creating this idea that there was something out that you could do to organize and make a difference in the world. I feel like today it's exactly flipped. And even just pushing the go button to start supermajority and having this overwhelming number of people calling in and wanting to do more, the biggest challenge today is actually finding enough for women to do because everyone wants to do more. And I mean, I'm spending my time in the middle of the country, in the South, in the Southwest. I think there's a real excitement among women, whether it's taking joy in the success of the women who got elected to Congress, seeing women like Stacey Abrams just make history and do so much and talk about issues that have been sort of put to the side for so long. So that to me is the number one challenge is actually, can we move fast enough and organize quickly enough to take advantage of the enthusiasm and energy of women? So the energy and enthusiasm, would you say that those two are among the biggest opportunities that you have? Absolutely. I mean, it's not convincing women that there is a problem, right? It's really actually helping women figure out what they can do to make a difference. So anyway, that to me is, that's the biggest organizing challenge. It's the biggest organizing opportunity, but it's why I'm really excited about what we're doing. Can we talk about what's happening in Alabama, Georgia, Missouri, all of these states that have been passing super unbelievably restrictive laws, whatever you want to call them. Uh, Abortion uh, bans. Thank you. (laughs) Abortion bans. What impact 
are those actions having on supermajority, on women, on organizing around the country that you've seen in your travels? Oh, I mean, I just think folks are on fire and not just women, men as well. All the recent polling I've seen shows that that for a long time, and of course all the time I worked at Planned Parenthood, the folks who opposed access to safe and legal abortion would pass all these laws basically trying to say that they were taking care of women, making sure that women got adequate health care. That was never the reason. But now all of that has been sort of put aside. And it's very clear that the energy now on the extreme right is to say, okay, we've now have Judge Kavanaugh confirmed to the Supreme Court. For the first time, we can see our way clear to actually overturning abortion rights in this country, a right that we've had for more than 40 years. And so you're seeing state after state after state pass bills that they know are unconstitutional, but they assume one of them is going to go to the Supreme Court. And I think people are taking this very seriously. And as we know, and here we are in the South, even if Roe isn't overturned, for many states, access to safe and legal abortion is almost impossible. We have the state of Missouri where the one health center that's remaining, a Planned Parenthood health center, is only open because of a restraining order right now, a temporary restraining order. And I don't know I don't think anyone knows whether, in fact, that they'll be able to stay open. That would be the first state, Missouri would be the first state since Roe was decided that has no access to safe and legal abortion. So this is an issue that is going to continue. And I think as we get into the electoral politics of 2020, this is an issue that is and will continue to be front and center. So abortion is front and center. How much is President Trump playing in the enthusiasm, the energy that you're seeing in your travels around the country? Does he factor, he himself factor into any of this? Or is it just the policies and things that he's doing that is galvanizing, energizing women? Well, I think... Obviously, we saw the day after the inauguration, the largest marches in the history of the United States of America, four and a half million people marching for women's rights. And so that is obviously, that lit a fire. But I think it would be easy to imagine that that would sort of then fade away. But in fact, it hasn't. And after issue after issue, whether it's been family separation, women rushing to the borders and highlighting what's happening to families who are being separated, whether it was the fight over the ACA, the efforts by not just, frankly, the president, but mm-hmm. by Paul Ryan, Yosef Wei, Paul Ryan, others to basically get rid of the Affordable Care Act, shut down Planned Parenthood. Then we've seen teacher strikes all over this mm-hmm. country in red states, mainly women teachers saying we've got to fund public education. I think there are a whole series of things that women care about, again, across geography, across a lot of divides that are much bigger than what's happening in this administration. But can we talk about something else about this? Sure. Because it's important. Okay. Yeah. I actually think that, and this is a good audience, I think, to be really talking about this too. Women basically, and women of color in particular, I want to shout out African-American women who've basically been the most progressive and reliable voters in this country for my entire lifetime, right? And I wasn't just saying that to get an applause line, but I'm glad you applauded. It's just important because a lot of people either don't know that or don't remember that. And what I'm hearing from a lot of women is like, okay, we make all the phone calls, we run all the phone banks. Last cycle, in fact, women contributed $100 million more to candidates and campaigns than they did the year Hillary Clinton ran for president, okay? They're doing all this work, but then once the election's over, issues that women care about, whether it's affordable childcare, healthcare access, maternity benefits, 
all of these issues sort of go to the side. And so I think one of the things that I feel like is really an important principle now, and we're working on at Supermajority, to really lift up a women's new deal. So what are the expectations? If we're going to do all the work, we want to make sure that at the end of the day, we're going to see change, which allows women in this country to have access to the things that she needs to live her life and support her family. And that, to me, is what's energizing women. All right. So given what you just said, I'm going to push back a little bit in this question and have you debunk it, because there have been stories both in the newspaper and on television about the fact that there are women across the country who are actively saying a woman can't win. Push back on that argument. Is that even real? Is that just folks in my profession trying to gin up some kind of controversy? Or yes, is, or, that's one part. Or, yeah. or, okay, <laughs> that's sort of a leading question, but a leading part of the question, but... Right. Is that a real sentiment? And for women in the audience who might be thinking that, or folks who are listening to this who might be thinking that, disabuse them of that notion that a woman could not be elected president of the United States. It's just interesting, because I know we heard some of this yesterday. Folks, I'm sure, said that to Lauren Underwood. I'm sure they said it to Ayanna Presley. I'm sure they said it to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. It's like nothing can happen until it's actually done. And so I think it's time for us to actually completely change our mind because of what our past experience has been. But actually, all the polling I'm seeing is folks are saying not just at the presidential level, but up and down the ticket, that more women need to be in office. And that's actually true now for men, for Democratic men, for Democratic women, for independent women. So I actually think things are changing. And the exciting thing is we've got six women running for president right now, and they're completely changing the conversation. So I just feel like we shouldn't get too stuck on the political pundits. And just point in fact, two-thirds of political reporters are men. So just kind of factor that in, too, in terms of how the stories are covered and, frankly, even how women candidates are covered. I don't know. I'm a terrible political prognosticator, but there's going to be a woman on the Democratic ticket this time, I think, no matter what. And that's just, that's just, just look at the math. Um, women were 54% of the voters in the November election, and every single group of women, except for Republican women, shifted towards Democrats college-educated women, non-college-educated women, Latina women. Actually, the only other group that didn't shift more to Democrats was African-American women because they were already at 90% support for Democratic (laughs) candidates. So there was like very little room to grow. And I think one other thing that's important, because I know that there was a lot of coverage about what happened in the presidential election with Donald Trump and the fact that white women supported Donald Trump. And I think that's an important fact that we all have to wrestle with and work on. But the interesting thing to me is that Actually, one thing I'd like to say, because it gets misreported all the time, it was actually a plurality of white women. It wasn't a majority of white women. It wasn't 53%? It wasn't 53%. It was 47%. 45% voted for Hillary Clinton. So still, that's not good. But I I think there has never been actually a correction of, of those numbers. However, the fascinating thing to me is if you look at the midterm elections over the last three cycles, I think in 2010, Anglo women voted 19 points in favor of the Republican candidates. Okay, in 2014, they voted by 14 points in favor of Republican candidates. In 2018, it was even. So that means there was a 14-point shift among Anglo women voters between 2014 and 2018. 
And I think that's important for anyone looking at demographic mm-hmm. shifts. Obviously, though, there's no guarantee that that kind of trend is going to continue, particularly if folks aren't talking to women voters. And so, but I think if you pull together the amazing turnout of African American women, the most reliable voters, Latinas, young women, Anglo women, pulled together, again, I think they're going to determine the next president. And that, to me, is good news. All right. So let's talk about the current president in a little more detail. We're dealing with an asymmetrical campaigner fighter here in President Trump. There are no rules. Asymmetrical, that's such a gentlemanly way to describe the president. That's. I mean, feel free to fill in the words for me. But I am anticipating, I am waiting for that moment when he attacks a woman candidate. And it will be, no matter what it is, it will be stunning It will be reprehensible, and it'll be demoralizing for a lot of people. How would you advise members of supermajority, women across the country, Americans, how should they respond to a president who will attack his opponent, no matter who they are, in ways that are amoral, immoral, ungentlemanly? I'm trying to look for a stronger word, but you know where I'm going. I actually think it speaks for itself. So I don't think there's a lot you need to do except to make sure people are aware. In fact, it's Do you respond? I mean, oh, do, absolutely. It, and I think it, actually that's one of, well, putting aside the president for a moment, one of the things I think is really exciting and different is that there are more women reporters now. There are more women who are have big social media followings. And so even when I see women candidates who are, I think, treated differently than their male counterparts in this presidential election, I feel like there is an immediate response. And that to me is really important because one of the things that I hear from women all the time and one of the reasons they come out to these convenings for super majorities, they say, I just want to feel like I'm not the only one, that I'm not crazy when I hear these things. And that, I think, is true with the president in terms of the things that he says about women. It's interesting, if you look back in the polling on women who voted for President Trump, the single biggest barrier they felt like to voting for him was his treatment of women. It was never an attribute for him. And in fact, it is his Achilles heel with women. And I think it's important that we remind people not only what he says, but as importantly, Jonathan, what an abysmal administration this has been for all women. And that's important because, I mean, that's one of the things that we're doing because it's very hard to follow that in the news. I've got to tell you this story, and I've been attributing it to, I think it was a panel I did. I keep saying Planned Parenthood. It might have been for NARAL, sort of a political panel around the time of the midterms. And I think it was during the Q&A, and someone jumped up and kept saying, I can't believe white women voted for President Trump and was going on and on. And how could they vote against their interests? This person who's bragged about sexual assault, filling on, you know, the rest. And someone on the panel jumped in and said, what makes you think they weren't voting their interests? You're focusing on the woman part, but you're not focusing on the white part. The privilege part. Well, talk about the role of race in all of this, because that's got to factor into supermajority and what you're doing. Absolutely. And in fact, one of the things that women are most interested in is actually working across racial lines and building coalitions across race, because that hasn't happened in this country in a long, long time. And look, I, so I will out a statistic that is horrifying. So even though I said in the midterms, Anglo women split evenly between Democrats and Republicans, that wasn't true across the board. And if you look at my friend Stacey Abrams, who, if all the votes had been counted in the state of Georgia, would be the governor today of that state. I think we all know that. Mm -hmm. But 
white women overwhelmingly voted for Brian Kemp for governor of Georgia. And so it isn't, this is work that has to be done. And the issue of privilege, to your very point, I agree when people say women are voting against their self-interest, I think, well, have you actually talked to them? And we do have to unpack this. I will say, and again, I've been organizing a long, long time. I'm finding so much more interest and really demand by women to actually talk to women about and listen to women who live in very different circumstances than they do, economically, geographically. We had a group of women in Phoenix, Arizona, everything from teachers who'd been striking, public school teachers who'd never been politically involved before, to dreamers, to women who worked on healthcare access, to folks who just were waking up and saying, I got to do something. And this to me is the real opportunity of this political moment, is how do women begin to build those bridges across race, across issue, across experience, and build a supermajority? The second thing about President Trump I want to talk about is, or get your view on, and that's this whole conversation about impeachment and whether an impeachment inquiry should be started. Are you even hearing anyone talk about that in your travels around the country? Is it an issue that is on women's minds? It's not something that anyone voluntarily brings up, particularly when you get out of the beltway. I mean, I think people are deeply disturbed about this president. A lot of the women I talk to are deeply disturbed about the vice president as well, though. And so the thought that you would replace this president with Vice President Pence, who has a really horrible... That's what I keep saying to people. Exactly. Don't ask for what what you wish for. Thank you. Putting that aside, what women are raising to me are the fact that they can't afford to work and have their kids in childcare that they can't figure out how they're going to stay in the house that they've been in because of the rent inflation in cities all across this country. Women who are primarily taking care of the elderly, they're taking care of their parents. With this country with no paid family leave, no provision for that, don't know how they're going to make it. Women who are working two jobs because they're making minimum wage. These are the issues that women are talking about. And so I just think it's important in this presidential election, like I love the fact that Elizabeth Warren is talking about child care. I love the fact that, that Kamala is talking about raising teacher pay, which affects, you know, primarily women. I just want to know what are all the men going to do about these issues, right? And that is really important to me because when women elect the next president, I want to make sure that they have women's issues front and center and that they aren't put by the side. How many of the candidates has Supermajority talked to or been in touch with? Have they been in touch with you? I would say almost all the candidates have called us, but we're not taking a position in the primary, although we will be lifting up this women's agenda this fall and hope to be engaging, not to have the candidates talk to women, but actually to have the candidates listen to women. We're going to try to invert the process a little bit, because I think that, to your very point, it was said yesterday, I think Chris Kuhn said it, the important thing that I feel like women are feeling right now is that no one actually is listening to them, and if they are, they're not hearing them. We just had 78,000 women fill out a poll of, like, what was the most most important superpower to them, and empathy was what came up. And I think that's because women are feeling, I I don't want to conclude too much, but I think women are feeling like we live in a country right now in a politics where there's so little empathy for other folks, and they want to see that changed. Your mother was the great Governor Ann Richards. You are the great Cecile (laughs) Richards. Your daughter, Lily Adams, is, you talk to anybody on the Hill, and stars appear in their eyes when they talk about Lily Adams, who is the communications director for Senator Kamala Harris's presidential campaign. In that broad sweep of history I just walked through, what do you think your mother would say about Lily today 
and about what you're doing with Supermajority and women pushing to have their vo- not only have their voices heard, but their priorities enacted. Yeah, I mean, I think mom would say it's about damn time, probably. Uh, I mean, she, of course... I'm sorry that mom didn't live long enough to see Lily kind of grow into this phenomenal woman that she is. And I I feel like actually I'm just the genetic link between Ann Richards and Lily (laughs) Adams, really. I feel like Lily got all of mom's DNA. But I think the one thing that mom would feel is something that I have felt a lot, which is for women, for most of our lives, we waited until everything was perfect. Like we had the kids were the right age or we had all the right degrees or we had all the right experience. And so my message to all women right now is start before you're ready, right? Don't wait for the perfect opportunity. Don't wait for someone to ask you. And Lauren Underwood is a perfect example. Beat six men in her primary and went on to win a general election without anyone tapping her and saying, you're the one. And I think that was what mom's biggest, I don't know, what gave her energy was seeing other women succeed. And I think she would be so thrilled that women are now not waiting for instructions, not waiting for permission, and just going for it anyway. There's a lot of things I miss about her. I'm particularly sad that she died before Twitter because I think she could really give this oh, president <laughs> a run for his money. Yeah, yeah. She would be incredible. Yeah, I think so. Cecile Richards, co-founder of Supermajority, former president of Planned Parenthood and author of Make Trouble, Standing Up, Speaking Out, and Finding the Courage to Lead. Thank you very much for coming back Thank to the podcast. Thank you, Jonathan. Good to see you. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ.